0: Hello and welcome to this month's Archimedes podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. My name is Bob Phillips and I'm here to take you through the critical appraisal note and the two clinical questions that we've got this month, which are real clinical questions generated by people in clinical practice and they've gone out to seek a best evidence answer to them. The first question comes from Serena Braccio at the Public Health England Department in London. It concerns the setting of an infant who's just about to have their immunisations and a question about prophylactic paracetamol, that is, giving paracetamol to the small child before having their immunisations in order to prevent fever afterwards. This is a bit of a new thing and so the person who's been asked the question goes away and searches the medical literature to see if there's any sort of evidence to underpin this. There are three databases searched with a pretty broad search strategy and brings back one systematic review and then a further randomised control trial published after the systematic review and links to a currently unpublished randomised control trial that then by tracking down through their secret byways they get the answers to. The background to this is that the immunizations, particularly the men in meningococcal B immunisation, have a high rate of fevers following that vaccination and there's worry that children of fever around about the time of vaccination are more likely to have their parents decline to bring them back for the further vaccinations in that series, thus reducing in the end the number of vaccines that the child's actually exposed to and so the protective efficacy of the treatment. There's On balancing that, a concern that using a prophylactic antipyretic will reduce the immunogenicity of the vaccines in some way and mean that the children aren't as well protected as if they hadn't had the paracetamol in the first place. Well, the evidence found, including that systematic review, was of 13 RCTs with over 5,000 participants and then another nearly 1,400 participants in the two subsequent RCTs that were discovered. When you put all that evidence together, what it looks like is it decreases the rate of fever from about two-thirds of infants down to about a third of infants. And while the absolute levels of the protective immunoglobulins are a little lower in the group which were exposed to paracetamol, the same proportion of infants still have a protective response. This underpins the recommendation that's now out throughout England to give prophylactic Paracetamol before infant vaccinations, and again around about four to six hours afterwards, and then four to six hours after that. The authors conclude by reminding us that if a fever occurs in a small child, we should seek seriously any cause of significant infection, and that fevers beyond approximately 24 to 48 hours after vaccination are unlikely to be due to the vaccine itself and need thorough investigation. The second critically appraised question addressed by Archimedes this month comes from Sarah Whitaker and Richard Tomlinson from the Department of Child Health in Exeter, also in the UK. This concerns a very different situation. There's a nine-year-old girl with non-ambulant cerebral palsy with the Gross Motor Function Classification Scale of Level 4 come to clinic She's definitely got a good enough calcium level and intake and vitamin D supplementation, but a recent DEXA scan has shown a bone mineral density that's in the osteopenic range, that is a Z-score of minus 2.6. Her mum is worried about the risk of fractures and asks what else can be done to reduce the risk in this setting. Well, the group took this as an important clinical question and again went away and searched in a variety of electronic databases to try to seek out a really good quality answer. They were really broad here and looked at any sort of physical therapy that might be helpful to decrease fracture risk and increase m- bone mineral density. What they found were nine papers, seven of which were randomised control trials and two of them case series Now it's notable that of the randomised controlled trials, the smallest had a number of participants of only four and the largest was 31. These are not large studies. The two case series were 18 and 78 children. Putting all of the information together was difficult as they all addressed different types of physical intervention such as weight bearing with the addition of extra physical therapy of different sorts or vibration therapy or dynamic standing. So different types of techniques to increase the amount of time that weight is put through the bones. The idea being that if you're weight bearing, you're more likely to increase bone growth and then increase the bone mineral density, and then that leads on to hopefully reduce fracture risk. What these studies show is that nearly all of the things that were tried did seem to increase bone mineral density in some way, but none of them were large enough or long enough to show a convincing effect on the number of fractures that the people experienced. Looking at them across the board, it looks like interventions that include vibration therapy, that is, standing on a type of machine that shakes gently, or had dynamic standing in some way, seem to increase the bone mineral density more than others, maybe combined management with lots of different approaches is better still but the weakness of the evidence is such that you can't definitely say that. The recommendations that are frequently quoted are that there should be 60 minutes of mechanical loading four to five times per week but these aren't really strongly supported by the literature. On the other hand, they're not unsupported by the literature either. The clinical bottom line is that there is some evidence that standing therapies do increase the bone mineral density in non-ambulant children, and that these may decrease the fracture list. The reasonable conclusions that are drawn from this is that it's often a sensible idea to promote these activities and combining different activities may assist further but that actually the evidence underlying this isn't particularly strong and really what we need to do as researchers is take this on further and actually have a serious look which of these techniques might be better to improve not just the numbers on a bone mineral density machine but actually improve quality of life and decrease fractures generally. Our critical appraisal note is about the practice of evidence-based medicine, that is the combination of patient experience, clinical expertise and also the best available evidence to make decisions about particular patients and the clinical situations that they are facing. One thing that I meet fairly often is the clash between randomised controlled trial information and patient preference for want of a better phrase. Take an example. Topical anaesthesia for accessing implanted central lines in children and young people who are undergoing treatment for cancer. For those of you who don't know, nearly every child who needs chemotherapy in Western Europe, North America and Australasia will have a surgically placed central venous line to enable access for blood takings and drug delivery. For some, it'll be described as a Wiggly, uh, a Hickman line, or a Broviac, something that comes out of the body, and for others it will be fully implanted, like a -a porticath or a passport. And in order to get to that, you need a needle to pass through the skin to get in and access the device. For straightforward venous access, we're aware from randomised controlled trials that topical anaesthesia is effective, and it makes the stabby things less painful. It's magic, so we call it magic cream. Now, there's some comparative evidence to show that the Emla cream might be a bit less good than the amitop creams, and there's some data that suggests that the vapor coolants, the sort of cold spray stuff, might be effective, but the systematic review that did that didn't show a significant improvement, and the authors interpreted that data as saying that it didn't work, which I personally disagree with. Now, if you take an RCT-only approach it would be demanding that you use Ametop on people, Emla, if you couldn't get hold of it, and you would never use cold spray. Actually, I suppose an extremist might argue that you couldn't use any of those things because the trials were in straightforward venous cannulation rather than patients that had implanted uh, central venous lines and that the information might not be applicable and we should just declare complete ignorance. Now, it's an observed phenomenon that some patients will ask, or at least their proxy will ask, for the spray, or for nothing, or for cream, or for bubbles, or for the iPad game, or for all of those things. And that for some patients, cream doesn't work, but the spray does. For others, the spray doesn't work, and the cream does. Some it's that cream, not the other cream. But... In that sort of experiential way, the working might just be an expectation, like a placebo effect or a previous one-off bad experience. Or... But when it comes to a choice for port access, we'll let it go and generally go with whatever it is that the person's asking for. But what if it was a choice about antibiotics for a titus media? Why don't the same rules apply there? We would be delighted to hear from you, either on our Facebook page, via Twitter, or off the blog site. number of blogs on there, and of course, listen to our podcasts from Archimedes, from the Editor's Choices, and from interviews with authors of other papers available off our SoundCloud page. Please let us know what you want to hear, and we will try to provide that for you. Until next month, thank you very much for listening.